What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This would be our fourth move in 10 Tell years. Backwards. But money's fine, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. A man and a woman sharing a tense exchange about money and their future. You don't need to hear anything more to know that it's from a movie about marriage. Indeed it is. The Nest, the latest from director Sean Durkin, stars Carrie Coon and Jude Law. It opens in limited release this weekend, and we've got a review. We'll also talk about the 1975 film Jean Dielman from director Chantel Ackerman. It's next up in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. That and more. Money's fine, right, Adam? We're good, Josh. We're good. Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, Josh, we celebrated the life of composer Ennio Morricone, sharing our top five Morricone scores, lots and lots of music. Yeah, the top five. Oh, Sam did such a great job. It was almost like if you listen to the top five, you're kind of getting a Spotify playlist of Morricone music, too. Absolutely. We also had a review of Sergio Leone's epic final film, Once Upon a Time in America, part of our 8 from 84 series. Morricone, of course, a longtime collaborator of Leone's. Could this week's show be a bigger contrast, especially the second part, as we get to the next film at our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, Chantel Ackerman's John Dielman from 1975? Yeah, another long film, right? Over three hours, but really nothing else is like Leone's epic. First of all, no score at all. No music. I guess some music from like a record that's put on by the characters, but no score proper. Also, one of our big problems with Once Upon a Time in America was its treatment of women. Ackerman's Jean Dielman, well, that is a deeply, deeply empathetic consideration of one woman's life. Yeah, I know we're both excited to talk about that here later in the show. But first, Jude Law gets to play another trademark weasel in the nest. But I think it's his co-star we'll really want to talk about. You're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. I paid our rent. I paid for Ben's school. I bought you a car. I bought you a horse. I paid for construction on your barn. You're delusional. I'll make money for us. For us? It's not for us. It's so you can go to fancy parties and tell people we have horses. For the first time in years, I feel worthwhile. I feel powerful. You're a poor kid pretending to be rich. We don't have any friends here. We don't have any family. What does it matter so much to you? Because I deserve this! A lot more! Adam, The Nest was on our radar largely due to its writer-director, Sean Durkin, who wowed us in 2011 with the psychological drama Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. That review, it was my first, my very first, as a guest host on the show, which gives you an idea of how long it's been until this, Durkin's second feature. Still, I came out of The Nest thinking that the movie belonged to a different member of its creative team, Carrie Coon. 
Kuhn plays Allison O'Hara, a horse trainer and wife to an English high finance broker named Rory. Jude Law is playing Rory, and I think he was born, Adam, to pronounce the name. I'm going to try this. Rory O'Hara. Mm-hmm. Love how he says that. He chews into that name. It's the 1980s in the movie. And Allison and Rory, along with Samantha, played by Una Roche, Allison's teen daughter from a previous relationship, and Benjamin, played by Charlie Shotwell, the younger son they had together, they all live a seemingly idyllic, upscale life in a woodsy, modernist home outside of New York City. One morning, Rory makes an unwelcome proposal. Given the coming financial boom expected in London, the family should pick up and move. To sweeten the deal, he even promises a country estate where Allison could have a stable of her own. And so she relents. Now, Kuhn isn't exactly a new name, Adam. She had a healthy early career on the stage, including American Players Theater, the Wisconsin company producer Sam and Family Call Home, and Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater. Her screen breakthroughs came with HBO's Leftovers and a supporting part in David Fincher's Gone Girl. She's since been a part of FX's Fargo, popped up as a minor villain in the last two Avengers films, and had a small part in Steve McQueen's Widows. The Nest, at least from what I've seen of her work, is the first time she's really had a chance to own the screen. And oh my, does she own it. We'll get to the particulars of her performance, Adam, but I want to start just by asking if any other star making turns from other actors came to mind as you watched Kuhn take this movie by the jugular. Maybe it's someone who was in a similar story. Maybe it's a familiar acting approach. Maybe it comes down to how Kuhn wears the movie's period setting. Who did Kuhn remind you of here and how did she also make the nest all her own? I don't know about star making turns specifically, and it's totally possible, Josh, that this answer is influenced by some of the promotional images I've seen online, in addition, obviously, to watching the film. But you look at the movie poster, for example, where she's looking into a mirror, I believe, and she's wearing this dinner dress, and she's got the flowing hair looking very blonde. And then there's another shot of her I've seen pop up in a few places where I think she's maybe wearing the same dress, and it's the same flowing blonde hair, but she's holding that cigarette in a very dignified way. There's something a little bit Danuvian about Kuhn, Mm. perhaps. There's a regal quality to her, but not an iciness. There's a frankness, and in this role, especially an earthiness. And it's funny, because my mind also goes to someone like Isabelle Huppert, as a comparison, another French actress. And Watching this movie, I did think a lot about Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue film with the English Manor House and the hints of psychological horror that we get. So maybe I'd throw in Julie Christie, too, even though, first of all, I'm not sure any of those actresses could pull off Kuhn's ecstatic dance scene in the bar. We get (laughs) kind of near the end of this film. It's really wonderful. But also Allison Kuhn's character, her Americanness is a fairly major part of her character. And I also think about Kuhn's performance in Bug, the Tracy Let's Play at Steppenwolf, which I'm so grateful I caught just under the COVID wire, I think in early February. She plays a character there, certainly on the fringes of American society. So maybe I'll just say she's a unique talent, giving a unique, really powerful performance. And I will note that I think Jude Law is up to the challenge here as well. Oh, yeah. And yeah, maybe somebody we take for granted as a really serious actor. One of the best scenes in the film is his in the backseat of a taxi. But we are invested because of Kuhn. And I don't know how to really 
quantify this or articulate it in a way that isn't just about a feeling I got watching the nest, but I was anticipating potentially interviewing Carrie Coon. So I was thinking about, obviously, the questions I might ask her as I was watching and as I was thinking about the film. And my first question was going to be how she as an actor considers or not genre when she's approaching a role, how it maybe informs certain ideas she has. And then when she's on set in the moment, actually playing scenes, because I do think Sean Durkin here pretty craftily navigates a couple of different fronts. It's billed as a thriller. We could maybe debate that a little bit. There is this pseudo horror aspect to it. I mentioned Don't Look Now. It's hard not to think a little bit about The Shining, right? Because there is there is something maybe supernatural afoot in this place, and it seems to be affecting their behavior. But at its core, it's this domestic drama with a husband and wife having to confront the deception in their marriage and their self-deception, how they convince themselves everything is fine and they're happy. Some of those horror elements and the thriller qualities are surely on the page, but mostly, Josh, I think it's conveyed here in the filmmaking, right? It's the, it's the creepiness of a slow zoom on a character from a distance, for example, mm-hmm. or following a character through a space slowly in real time. So we then experience her surprise at a door being open right along with her. It puts us in her same headspace. It's the overall mood and tone that comes from the production design, the sound design, the score here. That's really provocative. I think the shots and the pacing. So to the performer in the moment, is being in a thriller or a horror movie something you're processing and kind of knowingly participating in? Does it actually alter your performance in some way? Or are you only thinking about your character, what they want, what they need, scene to scene, moment to moment? I obviously didn't get a chance to ask her that question. I can hazard a guess, but I won't try to answer for Carrie Coon. But this movie probably doesn't work as well as it does if it strains too hard to amplify or deliver any of those elements. And it definitely doesn't work if Kuhn strains, if we don't see her as a woman who is stuck in a bad situation, but has total agency. If we don't see her as a flawed mother who recognizes those flaws and wants to be better than she is. And as someone who has no problem, occasionally justifiably carving up her husband and acting out in a way that doesn't feel wicked necessarily just wickedly fun. Mm, Yeah. Wickedly righteously fun. Yes. (laughs) is how I would describe it. Um, So two of those, you know, things you mentioned that came to mind for you, I think capture sort of what she's doing here perfectly. And it is the play bug, which I didn't see on stage, but I did see the movie. And in that case, uh, Ashley Judd is playing, I'm assuming the role that Carrie Coon played. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bug is something that is incredibly, I don't think this is a word, but scranky (laughs) is sort of (laughs) the material, um, I would say. And then you have Deneuve, who you mentioned, who you're right, Regal. And this role, this performance is the perfect blend of those things. She's regally scranky. She's scrankily <laughs> regal. And, mm-hmm. and it works brilliantly for what this movie is going for. Um, I did. I think I was influenced by the 1980s setting, too, because I brought uh, what came to mind for me is sort of the Terminator toughness of Lim- Linda Hamilton. And then mm-hmm. going to that hairdo. Yeah, I kept thinking of working girl Melanie Griffith, you know, totally. and, and there again are two sort of opposite 
personas that somehow Kuhn gets to work together mm-hmm. in the same role. Um, you know, Kate Blanchett and Carol came to mind. Jennifer Lawrence in American Hustle. I know we split on that film, but that was such an electric, like, even though I'm part of an ensemble, I'm grabbing this movie and making it mine when I'm on the screen. Um, and then I even thought, Adam, about our recent Betty Davis marathon. There might be a bit of Judith Trahern from Dark Victory here. You know, yeah. this socialite. A little bit of that wickedness, a little bit of the oh, maliciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But but still, in at least in Dark Victory, someone we're ultimately sympathetic with, right? Mm-hmm. When her life gets turned upside down by this medical diagnosis, there's both a tenderness and a fire to that performance. And I think you get some of that with, with Allison in the next. Uh, But mostly what you get, you know, are not these things that she brings to mind, but her own wonderful work. The dance scene is, you know, certainly a highlight in this movie because of not just what she's doing in the moment, um, which is so entertaining, but what it means for her. Right. This Mm -hmm. comes after later in the film. And I think we can just say, here's one thing that kind of held me back on the movie is once we saw that this was a bad decision (laughs) by the family, which we knew before they even go to England, it kind of just reiterates. Yeah, this was a bad decision. Mm. So there aren't a lot there aren't a lot of narrative surprises, at least for me in the nest, um, which is to say, I don't think I'm spoiling much to point out that. That Allison, it's an awakening for Allison that Rory isn't really what she thought he was. Or maybe, you know, how much was she had she been deluding herself about him? Delusion. By moving exactly. Yeah. yeah. By moving to England, she has to confront that delusion. Mm-hmm. And then what is she going to do about it? Well, one of the things she does at this client dinner she's been invited to, where he is being his smarmy self, and she just cannot take it anymore. She sabotages the dinner, um, just like so vindictively. Um, very Betty Davis moment there. Mm-hmm. Um and then leaves leaves him stranded with the clients and his coworkers feeling foolish and yeah that's when she just goes to a club and has this it's so, it's sort of a celebration independent moment um but it's also a very lonely moment you know i think i think durkin films it that way um and and kuhn performs the scene as one of exaltation but also loneliness um, and i think that's why it is such a special moment in the film so you get that you get you know another great dinner scene where um she kind of challenges him on their financial mm-hmm. situation and when he you know not too convincingly claims everything is fine she begins to order every expensive item off the menu for the both of them um, that is a great scene as well. And it, it's kind of just another moment where Allison shows that she had maybe been deferring to Rory in yeah. this marriage. But really, if anyone took five minutes to watch this marriage, she was the one who was in command, who was in charge, um, who knew what was best for the family. And it's really been an issue of when was she going to take that role Um firmly and not let him continue to play this game. You know, the game when we first meet him, when they're still in the U.S., where he makes breakfast and right. and he wants to drive them to school. And you understand fairly early on, that's like... Yeah, it's a con. It's a... You got it. That's it. Yeah. The scene you mentioned, I'm just smiling, thinking to myself about her wine tasting. And you'll have to see the nest to fully appreciate <laughs> yes. what I'm referring to. But one of the things you mentioned, that's another way that this movie is like the shining and that it's really not so much about the location that's this sinister presence all of those issues and tensions and frailties existed already inside jack torrance we certainly talked about that the last time we revisited the shining and i think you get that here as well in that 
she just pushes back even harder and is more brazen and more rightfully, as we said, righteously indignant. And he's just even more ruthless and hurtful and pretty smug and quick diversion. I already praised the performance of Jude Law as Rory. And you talked about Melanie Griffith and Working Girl. Maybe it's because we were recently on Blank Check and we talked about romancing the stone with Griffin and David. But I do think Law here is so perfectly balanced between charming. He really is charming. You can see how it works on a lot of people. And of course, just so absurdly smug. And maybe it's the 80s milieu and maybe it's the Gordon Gecko ethos that he espouses. But can you imagine a version of this movie in the 80s where a 40-something Michael Douglas played Rory? We'd yeah. Have to, we'd have to figure out the British accent part or wherever they were going, right? But otherwise, Douglas could totally nail this. And I think Law does as well. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you know Rory is a weasel from the start. I think with Douglas, you'd know when you saw his name in the opening credits, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah. no, that's, that's maybe the maybe the only difference. But Rory, yeah, Law is good here. I don't mean to downplay his contributions. I, I think um, maybe Rory isn't, and this goes back to the not any real lack of narrative surprise. Rory isn't the most complicated of characters. Once we kind of, we have an inkling of who he is. Once Allison confirms that, that's pretty mm-hmm. mo- much what you get. But Law layers each moment he does. of that character with the cockiness you mentioned, but also the insecurity, which, you know, just kind of once he knows Allison is onto him, that insecurity just starts seeping out of him, right? This and a yeah, low level the panic. There yeah. it is. A low yeah. level panic takes its place. And there's a very crucial scene that could have been a throwaway scene that Durkin includes, um, where Rory visits his estranged mother for the mm-hmm. first time in we get a sense, I don't know, maybe fifteen, maybe twenty years, something yeah, like and that. And it really doesn't serve a function in the plot. Do- movie does I can tell, right? Yep. Movie doesn't need it in terms of plot. Um, And what does he do? He spins this braggy yarn that his mother clearly is not buying. Beautiful, blonde, American wife. Yeah. And notice he leaves out in the story. He leaves out a stepdaughter. Yeah. Only talks about, you know, the biological child he had with Allison. But law in that scene, the tiny constrictions that kind of go across his face while he's talking, trying to keep up this con with his mother. Um, It's, it is a really layered, incredible performance from law. Yeah, it is. And you're right here that the characters word choices. And like another movie we're going to talk about here in a little bit, the actions reveal so much. So right away, we understand the family dynamic when we hear Samantha, the daughter call him Rory and Mm -hmm. the other child calls him dad. And he, (laughs) Not maybe intentionally or maybe intentionally cuts her out of the picture that they take of the family when they arrive at the new estate. Oh, you know what? Let's get her in a shot now. Now that yeah. I've gotten the shot, that's just the family that he obviously really cares about and thinks. Nice little detail. Yeah, this is his child. The other one isn't. So she can just be left out. And then you're right. He doesn't mention the daughter to his mother. And did you notice, too, I'm pretty sure it's only in that taxi scene I referenced earlier when he's trying to take credit for being a good dad. Does he all of a sudden claim to have two kids? Mm-hmm. Then he's the father of two kids. Yeah. In that yeah. Moment, Josh, because the numbers, the numbers help him there. So you're right, <laughs> I think, with this movie that the surprises aren't really within the narrative but the revelations are all character based and mm-hmm. they all are performance based and they mostly are tied to Allison and Kuhn's performance but I do think we get some of those layers as you said and a bit of a reckoning for Jude Law's character as well but those two showpieces 
in this movie are the dinner scenes. And you touched on one. I don't want to spoil it either. But I love that Rory is talking at one point about the wonder of being in such close proximity to a great actor. And forget being in the front row of a theater. She gets to sit right next to him and watch him perform Mm -hmm. every single time they're together. Every time he opens his mouth, whether he's doing it just for her or he's doing it for a larger audience. And Kuhn's first instinctual reaction there is just so perfect, right? And there's there's also subtler moments with her where we get one of those kind of long close-ups. The camera just stays on her during a toast. Though I think we see... Rory's reaction for most of the shot, maybe the entire shot, even though it's mostly on her as it's moving closer to her. And you get the pride and the obliviousness on Rory's face because he's being talked about. So, of course, he's happy. But you then see on her face the recognition of the consequences, I think, in that moment of this decision and and of this marriage. The realities of this marriage are starting to set in because that is a moment where – We know something that she doesn't until then. And I think it's possible that Durkin still would have given us this moment without this small revelation. She would still be having this reaction. But earlier in the film, when he positioned the move to her, he, of course, lied and suggested that this old colleague, his old boss, reached out to him and said, I have an opportunity for you. And in that toast, the old boss reveals that Rory contacted him. So those little betrayals, those little indiscretions, those little secrets, they all hit her. And Kuhn, of course, nails that moment. But Durkin, of course, really sets it up nicely by giving us that steady close up that just moves in on her. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly performed scene of this imperceptible register registering of what maybe she has suspected. And this reveal has confirmed it for her. And really, it it reorients her whole world, right? That That's kind of where the transition comes after that moment. And I think it is a slow zoom into the close-up because you're right. We see Law, we see Rory taking in all the praise. And then, you know, as it zooms closer in on her, he gets cut out of the frame. Right. So it's kind of like it becomes less about Rory's praise and all about her awareness. Um, And yeah, Kuhn is totally up to that moment. And Durkin uses slow zooms throughout. I mean, the opening shot is of their home back outside of New York. And it's a kind of this creepy horror movie style zoom out from their house. Yeah. So and, you know, I think I think uh, Martha. Marcy May Marlene for me was maybe a little more um, a little smoother of an integration of horror elements Um, and it was maybe more clearly psychological horror because so much of it was about being in that main character's head and and experiencing Mm -hmm. what she's experiencing Um, here unlike you maybe I never got a threat that there was any sort of supernatural force at play even though the movie climaxes in this you know where where things go really bad for all of the O'Hara's we won't spoil anything in like an extended parallel sequence Mm -hmm. And I think there's supposed to be a hint of something weird going on, maybe with with a horse we won't give away. The door door is in there. Yeah, but I don't. After she closed it. Yeah, I don't know if that. I never really like bought that as. Um, you know, say like something like hereditary. Um, no. And this movie, this movie doesn't want to be hereditary, um, right. but it did come to mind watching it is like, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really into this as a horror movie, but I, I do have to ask you about the horse. 
<laughs> because at first I thought, you know, this is a really clever way of sort of capturing the discombobulated state of the family. This mm -hmm. is when they're still in the U.S. and Allison has agreed to this and she's trying to get her horse to go in the trailer to be transported, this transatlantic flight, and the horse doesn't want to go in, right? And it's, it's like three seconds, but it's just kind of nice foreshadowing. But man, does Durkin return to this horse almost to the point where it becomes a comic metaphor? And maybe that was the intent mm -hmm. um, because – Without giving it away, but the, the trajectory of the horse to me <laughs> was maybe overdone a little bit. Yeah, no, I can see that. And I agree that I had the same reaction in terms of thinking, okay, as a metaphor for Allison <laughs> and specifically for their marriage, it's hard not to see it as pretty on the nose. And maybe, in fact, there's something subtle about it and nuance that we're overlooking because it is that obvious. But I don't think I had an issue with it, Josh, because I was otherwise so engrossed in this movie. And Kuhn's performance is a big part of it, as we have said. But I want to give credit to Durkin, too. And I know we have, but I want to mention this as truly a Sean Durkin film. And I didn't have a chance to rewatch Martha May or even go back and revisit my notes. So I'm not going to make that direct comparison, even though I think what you said is accurate. But in terms of the choices he makes... This could be such a different film and such a less compelling film. Beyond those slow zooms, we do get some of that psychological horror in those shots where we frequently see characters through glass, where mm -hmm. there's a fractured effect. It starts right at the beginning after we do get that zoom out that you mentioned. Or there's often a shading effect where some part of the frame is obscured by something. So you always kind of feel like you're you're not getting the full picture and you're trying to look around objects. There's lots of uses of reflections. And during this great long take argument during the husband and wife and earlier in the film in a discussion that Allison is having with her mom before they leave Durkin really effectively cuts to the kid's point of view during these arguments we hear what the daughter is hearing and experiencing in both of those instances which does ratchet up not only the tension but I would say the horror aspect in the sense of just the domestic horror having to having to experience it not just as viewers but we're then kind of put in the space of the kids who are going through it as as well. So there's just a sense to me that everything is very economical here. Everything is very deliberate. And another thing I would have asked Kuhn about is what it was like. And I'm sure she's worked with other directors who have done this, but Durkin strikes me. I could be wrong, but he strikes me as the type of filmmaker who probably is not relying on a lot of coverage, which usually actors talk about as being a good thing. They love kind of being in sync with the director, understanding their vision, knowing why the camera is there. They're not doing a bunch of extraneous acting or I guess wasting performances and wasting shots. Everything here is so clearly carefully considered and composed. Yeah. And especially I would imagine if you have a theater background, you know, you would like that, which, which to me really comes out in that one bitter fight you were referencing back in the manor, I think is the one you were talking yeah. about, right? The long yeah. shot, um, which gets, you know, that one is, gets really scary. That one I put on par with the, the, the blowout in marriage story, to be honest with you, in terms of, um, the bitterness, the anger, mm -hmm. the emotions on display. Um, and, and I almost, makes me wonder too you know if having a theater background you kind of feel like you, you feel like coon and law and i don't know if law has a theater background but but they're truly acting for the person in front of them in that scene yeah. not the camera and part of it is of course the long take but it was sort of like the the 
I felt like I was watching a stage play in that scene. Yeah. Um, and, and it's Durkin is letting, giving them the space to do that, but it's also just how tied in um, they were to each other, oblivious to any sort of audience or any sort of camera. Um, and yeah, it gets really scary in there. You know, it, it's, it's on the verge of violence and, you know, back to what we've been talking about with Kuhn's performance, you kind of feel like Allison is going to more than hold her own if this goes really sideways in this moment. And, and it's kind of scary. You mentioned, you know the scene with her and her mother which comes before they move and now that we're talking about it, it strikes me you know that's a that makes the scene with rory and his mother a nice bookend you know and i think there's a nice narrative balance there that durkin gives us two Good scenes point. one at the beginning one at the end of each of them with their their respective parent and we see their products to some extent of their environment completely yes Yep, exactly. And so that starts to flesh out, you know, despite what I said about Rory as a character, I think that scene is crucial and starting to flesh him out a little bit. Uh, we've mentioned Samantha, the daughter, the teenage daughter, a couple of times played by Una Roche. I think, I mean, everyone's good in this movie. Yes. This, this is just chock full of great performances. She stood out to me. Um, at, you know, she kind of has that. She vacillates back and forth uh, between genuine endearment for her mm -hmm. for her parents for rory as well like it's it's not like that's a fractious relationship but then like utter disdain for them in the next moment and i think just uh, that's just you know it's true to life <laughs> and and she captures that really well and i also want to cite too as uh as rory's boss because every time he came on the screen i was just like oh this is going to be great it, yeah. michael culkin one of these guys you know has been in a ton of stuff yep. um and he gets he gets a moment too right because he's he's welcoming rory back and and again not a major plot point but we'll let listeners discover it there's a moment where their relationship takes a little turn and the way culkin bears down um on that mm -hmm. scene maybe i just enjoyed it because it was another scene of rory <laughs> getting what's coming to him a little bit which is a lot of what this movie consists of well i just want to end by saying stop writing your emails i'll correct josh jude law of course a proper British thespian. How dare you? Figured he suggest, had to be. Suggest that maybe he doesn't have a theater background. I mean, I'm pretty sure he played Henry V on the West End. He played Hamlet on Broadway. So, you know, let's give the guy his props there. Jeff. There you go. So here's the bad news about The Nest. It is opening in theaters only right now, including, I think, five theaters throughout Chicagoland. It's not going to hit VOD until mid-November. Keep an eye out for it. Then if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, we have a more subdued, though still fascinating portrayal of a housewife up next as our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon continues. We'll discuss Delphine Sirig in Jean Dielman. Plus, we'll have results of the film spotting poll. Stay with us. Softly, just break it to me softly. Be straight with me, but gently tender before you kill me. Bow, bow. Oi, bow, bow. Calmly, I don't freak out in public. Take me outside and crush me over a cup of coffee. Ow, ow. What a joke, what a joke, you Joke, what a joke. 
Virginia, right? I can tell. You're special. We are the future. You. You're not like the others. That's from the trailer for Antebellum, a new horror thriller starring Janelle Monet. It's the feature debut of directors Gerard Bush and Christopher Rentz. In the film's opening section, Monet plays Eden, an enslaved woman in Antebellum South. Later, we're introduced to another character played by Monet, this one in the current day, a successful author and history PhD. The mystery of the film is what connects these two characters. Josh Antebellum arrived on VOD this weekend. It has so far received mixed reviews, a couple of raves, but also some pans, including one from friend of the show Angelica Jade Bastien. The title of her review for Vulture is I Am Tired of Films Like Antebellum. You have seen it. Do you recommend it? Yes, I'm going to have to disagree with Angelica here. And, you know, just because you think someone's a great critic doesn't mean you always have to agree with them, Adam. So so I'll, I'll be all right here. Um, I think Antebellum, I think this worked for me largely because... Back when Get Out came out and, you know, a number of years ago now, I, I did write about, you know, is this going to lead to sort of a new genre of of explicitly racially tinged genre pictures, especially, especially in the realm of horror? And I think we have gotten a lot of those. I'm also watching Lovecraft Country right now on HBO, which is kind of doing the same thing, you know, is taking these genre elements and explicitly looking at them through the lens of race. And that is what you have here. Now, that doesn't mean just because it's doing that, it's doing it well. And you could say, if you don't stick with Antebellum, because it took me a while to, to get into the groove with this thing, at first I found it to be a very sadistically generic slavery drama. And it was kind of like, why do we need one or another one of these? Am I learning anything new here? But then there is a reveal, a twist, and some people might see it coming. I didn't. It got me. It doesn't have anything to do with, well, it does have something to do with the two characters you described, but that isn't the twist. Fairly early on, we are introduced to the secondary character who's who's living in 2020. But I think when that twist comes, it kind of gives a fairly good reason for why this initially felt like a sadistic generic slavery drama. That's that's kind of part of what it is trying to do. And so that really worked for me. Uh, Janelle Monet, I think, is great in both roles. And I just love these genre mashups like this. And this is a part period piece. It's part horror flick. There's a lot of Shyamalan-esque chicanery going on that, you know, I'm I'm a little more open to than most people, Adam. Um, chicanery. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Shamacanery. A lot of shamacanery going on here. <laughs> but it, it, this isn't a great film. This isn't on Get Out's level. I do think the directors, Renz and Bush, there is even... There is a level of exploitation. There's way more scenes of subjugation than the movie needs. I'll just say that. Um, and if that is bothering some people, I get it. The climax goes a little bonkers and very vengeful in a way that reminded me a little bit of, you know, some of the black exploitation films we looked at when we did that marathon. Uh, but there's also a lot of timeliness. There is a gonzo moment involving a Robert E. Lee monument in this movie, Adam, that is like, I, I, you know, in this year, and the monument debate has been going on before this year, but this year where we're having a lot of that just really strikes a chord. And I think ultimately this is an interesting 
somewhat crazy movie about how we regard history, but also the ways we perpetuate it. And I think the reveal is part of that. So if anyone is interested in it, I would say avoid any trailers. I did avoid any information about it because the less you know going in, the better. Antebellum, again, is currently available on VOD. All right, Adam, you skipped Antebellum. Probably not your thing, but you did catch The Devil All the Time from director Antonio Campos. That came to Netflix this week. It's set in post-World War II rural Ohio and West Virginia. It has serial killers in it as well as false prophets. The stars are Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson, along with several other notables. It's based on a 2011 best-selling novel by Donald Ray Pollock. What did you think? Well, I wish I could recommend it as strongly as you did Antebellum. I can't really, and that's disappointing because I am a big fan of director Antonio Campos. His debut after school is very good. Christine, really good. I actually still need to see his Simon Killer. But let me put it this way. Our friend Michael Phillips, I did read his three-star review in the Chicago Tribune, so he liked it a little bit more than me. And he really praised Tom Holland in this role and thought Robert Pattinson belonged to another movie. Hmm. Whereas I think that Tom Holland really does not at any point pull off this character. And I wish I was watching the movie that Robert Pattinson is in. He he definitely is on another level here. He's doing Robert Pattinson things with the performance. But you know what? I find that almost always fascinating these days. Yeah. I mean, if I had to choose, I'm going with Pattinson. Yeah, he's in a supporting role. He only shows up maybe midway through the film. But I think he's really the standout in this movie. And honestly, I found myself watching Holland. And I know he is six years younger than the actor I'm about to mention. So maybe it wouldn't have worked. But Bill Skarsgård plays his dad in earlier scenes in the film before Holland's character has been born or when he's a young boy. And I would have loved to have seen Bill Skarsgård play Holland's character, just bringing so much more depth to this role. I don't know, Josh, maybe I'll admit it if there is a little bit of a residual Spider-Man thing going on here where it's just hard to see him in this Mm -hmm. rough and tough period drama being a badass when you think of him as your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He didn't transcend that for me, unfortunately. But the bigger issue, and I wasn't familiar at all with the book, didn't even know it was based on a book. And yet within about 20 or 30 minutes, all I could think was, On the page, I bet all of these different storylines covering different generations and different characters and the way they intersect would really work. And in a movie, Campos is very ambitious and audacious to try to adapt it, but I don't think he pulled it off. It all feels just a little bit too contrived. And I wonder if on the page with a little bit more room to breathe and just the way the way we experience novels versus the way we watch films, if that would have somehow made a difference. It seems to me really rich source material, but other than those performances by Skarsgård and Pattinson, I never was on the same wavelength with The Devil All the Time, which is currently on Netflix, as you said. That's a hard career move to make, you know, when when you have an iconic role like Peter Parker and then you're going to go in a different direction. I think sometimes actors go they take too hard of a right turn into something yeah. um, where you you almost need a step beyond where you were. And then maybe I think Pattinson has, you know, kind of maybe that model or did he he kind of went crazy. Actually, now that I think about it, after the Twilight films, he was like, I'm putting this way behind me. Yeah, he took a giant step uh, into art film territory. So, yeah, tricky maneuver to make. Sounds like Holland hasn't quite pulled it off here. 
Yeah, our producer Sam also wondered if I wanted to mention something else I viewed over the weekend. I was one of 100,000 people or so that watched the live read of The Princess Bride. Did you hear about this, Josh? It was trending on Twitter yeah, yeah. here in Chicago. I think, uh, yeah, my sister, uh, my sister and her family did it. They invited us to do it as well, but uh, we didn't end up. Was it fun? Yeah, it was. I mean, The Princess Bride... I'll say, is the first movie my wife and I ever watched together. It's her favorite movie, knows every single line, every sigh, every gesture. And watching it, even if you're just putting it on your screen, and of course, there's some of those technical malfunctions and those limitations, but getting to revisit and relive Wallace Shawn as Vizzini and... Mandy Patinkin going all in on Indigo Montoya. Like he wasn't just doing the table read. He's like, you know what? People have donated money for this for a good cause. I'm going to give them a performance. And he really does. And of course, then you get Billy Crystal and Carol Kane back. And afterwards, they did a QA and a and shared some really fascinating stories about the making of that film. Rob Reiner, of course, the director of the movie, played the Peter Falk grandfather character here and really did a nice job as well. Has the perfect voice and the necessary warmth for that character. So yeah, I had fun with The Princess Bride, and maybe we'll see a few more of those types of affairs springing up. Adam, I just want to head off a couple of emails on your behalf, because we'll probably hear from people who will say, remind us that both Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson were in The Lost City of Z, a movie we loved quite a bit. I had totally forgotten that. But Robert Pattinson, memorable from The Lost City of Z. Tom Holland, not so much. Maybe that's the problem. I forgot that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next week here on the show, we have a really fun and a really arty top five plan that is inspired by the work of a very special guest. He is photographer Gregory Crudson. And our top five, we're calling it right now, Josh, until maybe we land on a better name, Landscapes as characters. And this truly is inspired by his work. He does these large scale atmospheric photographs that are like entire movies distilled into a staged photo. His work has been compared to David Lynch, David Fincher. There are a lot of DPs in the industry who reference Crudson and point to him as an influence. Yeah, basically from from the images I've seen, and there was a New York Times article about him that has a couple of his photos included there. It's almost as if the most iconic moment from a movie that doesn't exist is what he gives you. So yeah. so it's like the definitive moment of this imaginary movie is what you're looking right. at in his photos. And they do use, you know, one or two figures set in a not so much like always a natural landscape, though it seems like they're usually outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are buildings involved in the background too, other objects that have been artfully positioned. And yeah, so this is going to be an interesting list to even think about. We're, we're kind of where we're at is, you know, what movies, this is where I am at, at least when I see his photos, what movies come to mind, you know, what yeah. movies have created similar imagery for similar purposes and to similar effect. So I can't wait to look at more of his art and get a better sense of that and then start to put together my list. Yeah, he's worked with Tilda Swinton, Julianne Moore, Gwyneth Paltrow. He's also currently the director of graduate studies in photography at the Yale School of Art. And apparently he's a listener of Film Spotting. So that'll be fun to have him on. He's going to join us again for our top five landscapes as characters. Josh, I think you did a pretty good job describing what we're going to endeavor to do with this list. Of course, when we actually sit down and try to form a top five, it might prove a little bit more difficult. If someone would like to help us, if you want to point us in any directions, make any of your picks, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, we now have some 
digital movie bundles to give away. On last week's show, we announced a partnership with Warner Brothers, inspired by their new video series, Hollywood's Most Influential Filmmakers. On each episode, they go behind the scenes and follow the journeys of modern cinema's most celebrated directors, including Martin Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, Stanley Kubrick, and more. This series did debut just last week over at youtube.com slash Warner Bros online, and you can check out these great series. We asked listeners, Josh, to weigh in on a death match. They had to pick. They had to. Scorsese or Kubrick, who do they prefer? We got a ton of entries, as I said, and looking at it, I didn't do fully scientific results. I didn't tabulate everything, but it seemed to be maybe at most about 55-45. We actually got, I think, slightly more Scorsese, but it was pretty evenly split, and that will be reflected here in our winners. We did pick five at random, and they get some digital bundles of some of the great films by the filmmakers I mentioned, including movies by Stanley Kubrick and Martin Scorsese. David Kolb is one of our winners. He said simply Kubrick, one word, didn't need anything else. We also heard from Robert Donovan in Roseville, California. He says, I have to go with Kubrick over Scorsese. Both have amazing bodies of work, but The Shining, The Killing, 2001, Eyes Wide Shut, they're all masterpieces with endless rewatchability. Our third winner is Isabel Bishop. She said, I'm going to have to go with Scorsese over Kubrick. Kubrick is a genius, of course, but Scorsese is the master and perhaps the greatest American director of all time. I definitely enjoy Scorsese films more and actually want to watch them rather than feeling like I have to watch them just because they're important, like I feel with Kubrick films. Not to mention, Scorsese is a genuinely nice and good person, where I'm not sure you could say that about Kubrick. He was very pretentious and rude and emotionally abused and traumatized Shelley Duvall, which is unforgivable. You know, Isabel might be right, but I want to hear her stories about hanging out with Marty. <laughs> Matthew White is our fourth winner. Congratulations, Matthew. He went with Scorsese, Must Have Goodfellas, and The Departed. And our final winner here, Abby Rowe from New York, New York. Kubrick. Scorsese has an amazing body of work, but Kubrick has a wider array of genres in his filmography and is a master of them all. Yeah, I may not disagree with the master part. I wonder if you really broke it down if Kubrick worked in a wider array of genres than Marty has. And now I'm just going to refer to him as Marty from mm -hmm. here on out. He's I such see. a genuinely nice and good person <laughs> that I feel like I feel like I know him. But they're both directors who have done a lot of different types of films. Wouldn't you say, Josh? Has Marty done a sci-fi epic yet? I mean, they've both no. done period pieces. Yeah. Um, they've both done horror. Um, I mean, we could go down the list. Musicals. Uh, yeah, yeah. There you, well, domestic dramas, mob movies. I don't know. Kubrick, of course. Well, he did kind of make a mob movie a little bit in The Killing, that kind of gangster movie True. anyway. Of course, you really can't go wrong with either Kubrick or Scorsese. Congratulations to our winners. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will get you set up with your digital bundles. One way you can support Film Spotting is to join the 900 plus members of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. We're going to get there, Josh. We're going to get to 1,000 here at some point. We are offering our family members exclusively the chance to participate in Trivia Spotting 2. We're going with the Squeakwell. It's this Friday. <laughs> okay. We've when this show on drops. The I yeah, like it. Some people might be listening as we're participating in this event with about 60 listeners, some film spotting crew members and other VIPs going to join us. Who are those VIPs? Well, we've got Matt Singer, Allison Wilmore from 
formerly Film Spotting SVU, of course, great critics. Keith Phipps from The Next Picture Show is going to join us. So we'll do more of these and hopefully we'll have more family members to potentially invite to participate. We're also going to have a virtual screening on Saturday, September 26th of Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Still working on those technical details, but basically we're going to give people the honor, Josh, the true honor to watch a movie with us. Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to take my notes that I usually take and then I'll just hold them up to the screen. Is that is mm. that how this is going to work, Adam? Sure. Does that sure. count? Okay. We'll try that. <laughs> I think you'll be very conversational <laughs> while you're busy taking notes and ignoring our audience. And ignoring you and Sam as well. Yeah. Uh, we should note also, because we are going to do more trivia spotting, that uh, – if you're thinking about this, but feel like, eh, I don't want to be put on the spot, I, it, you know, sounds too competitive, too intense. That has not been our experience at all. Basically, no. we do this as teams. So you're with a group of four or five other listeners. You do a breakout room, come up with your answers together in kind of this small group, and then come back, have a spokesperson give the answers. So it's really no pressure. You won't be put on the spot. And I can't emphasize enough how much fun it is. So yeah, if we do another one, please join the family for a chance to join us. Yeah. I mean, based on what I've heard about your performance on the first trivia spotting, you can really contribute nothing and it's fine. So we all know that's not true. <laughs> I blatantly stated that I was in the middle of the pack. In please, the middle of the pack. Please respect my mediocre <laughs> performance, Adam. <laughs> okay. You can be mediocre, just like Josh. You can be even worse than Josh. It doesn't matter. It will be a fun time, and we will do more of these down the road, maybe a monthly experience over here at Film Spotting. If you're a Film Spotting patron, in addition to those types of opportunities, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You get early downloads, a merch discount, and you do get bonus content. You get a monthly bonus episode. Our trivia spotting winners, our winning team, one of their prizes was they got to suggest bonus content. We always make our bonus content available to our family audience over on Patreon to choose. There's three options. Whatever gets the most votes wins. We gave the six winners the chance to nominate some bonus content. And I have to say, I know that it gets a little bit fractured when you have six choices, but I think with 30% or maybe a little bit more of the vote, Paris, Texas, the Vim Vendors film, which is an 84 film. So this would be a bonus eight from 84 movie. It looks like it's going to take it, Josh. And that's the movie we're going to be discussing on our next episode. I'm surprised. Not that I'm not eager to revisit the movie. I probably haven't seen it since 1995. So I'm sure there will be a lot there to discuss. But I really thought with some of those other options... Maybe Paris, Texas wouldn't seem that sexy. And yet there it is in first place. People love Paris, Texas. And I, I'm glad because I do like that we get to keep going with the 8 from 84 series in this way. But also, I think it's a movie I probably underrated. I liked it. But knowing the glowing adoration most people have for it. Yeah, I'm eager to revisit it again. We also thank all of our Patreon members who have signed up or edited their pledge to go from the $5 a month family plan to the annual membership where you actually get a 10% discount. So over one month free if you go that route. We thank all of our family members and you can be one too by going to patreon.com 
slash film spotting. Well, over on the next picture show, our sister podcast, it's The Mind of Charlie Kaufman Part 2. So they're discussing I'm Thinking of Ending Things. They paired that with being John Malkovich, which they talked about earlier. So yeah, a deep dive into the mind of Charlie Kaufman going on there on the next picture show. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. Matt Singer is joining them for this pairing as well. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net massacre theater is a part of film spotting where we perform a scene badly from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt in case you missed it here's a bit of last week's massacre i have to be able to trust you with my life you understand can i trust you can i trust you can i trust you answer me can i trust you you can trust me good then you can tell me what the money's for If you know what film we massacred, well, then we can trust you. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You've got until Monday, September 21. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. When that gate opened, she ran up and just put her arms around me and collapsed on me. She was so wet and cold that you could feel her shivering to her bones. And I said, well, who's going to kill you? She said, OJ. That's a clip from the Oscar-winning doc, OJ Made in America. It was one of the options we gave you in the current film spotting poll, which asks, what is the best film, three hours or longer, that came out in the last decade? The options were OJ, Avengers Endgame, Blue is the Warmest Color, Carlos, The Irishman, The Wolf of Wall Street, or you could write in a candidate and go with other. Josh, how did it come out? Well, one of those rare cases where other isn't in last place, that belonged to Carlos with 3% of the vote. Then we did get other, 7% of the vote there. Blue is the warmest color, received 10%. The Irishman, 15%. Avengers Endgame, 16%. And then Scorsese again here with The Wolf of Wall Street, receiving 21% of the vote. But the winner was OJ. OJ took it, 28% of the vote. Nathaniel Mordain writes in, if you're putting OJ Made in America on here, then I'm voting for other Twin Peaks, The Return. (laughs) Here's Chris Massa Minute Massa in Pittsburgh. Two things. First, OJ Made in America premiered at Sundance, and it also played at Tribeca. In both settings, it had one intermission. It also had a theatrical run where it had two intermissions. It was nominated for and won an Academy Award. My point? OJ Made in America is a movie. Yes, it played on TV, and yes, it can be broken into multiple episodes, but it's a movie, not a TV show. Not only that, but it's the best movie in this poll. So there. Second, if we're going to argue over a minutia, why stop now? There is some debate over the Wolf of Wall Street's running time. Oh, you know I love this, Adam. IMDb lists it as, <laughs> three, it as three hours on the dot, but the case and disc list it as 179 minutes, one minute short of three hours. What is Sam. clear is that if it is three hours long, it's that length because of the end credits, not because of the film itself. Should it be in this competition? Maybe not. Does it really matter? No. Because OJ Made in America should win, and I predict that it will. It's the Chris Minutia Minute (laughs) from Pittsburgh, and I love all of the explanation he provided. It's just like The Wolf of Wall Street to cheat its way into second place into this poll. So it works for me. Jacob Britton says, as much as I love Carlos, the Olivier Assayas film, and it pains me to see it doing so poorly in this poll— 
I've got to go with The Irishman. I've seen it multiple times, always in a single sitting, and it just flies by. I may be one of the few who wishes it were even longer. Maybe we'll get a, a like Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, maybe we'll get a five and a half, six hour cut of The Irishman in, in 15 years. Here's Daniel C. As much as I love The Irishman, I have to support a spectacular film from Argentina, Mariano Ginas's La Flor. This 14-hour epic consists of six stories, each one a different genre and, on the surface, with nothing in common, other than the fact that they all star the same four actresses. What Ginas and his protagonists accomplish here is a work that speaks to so many themes, Cold War-era politics, songwriting, the construct of cinema itself, collaboration in creative environments, being haunted by the past, and many, many more topics. I cannot recommend it enough. So we both did miss LaFleur. We did not set aside a weekend to watch this movie, but we are familiar with Ginas's work because he directed Extraordinary Stories, which I think might have been my best picture, maybe yours as well, from our contemporary Argentine cinema marathon a while back. Not a short film itself. No. That's another one. It was about four hours long, I yes. think, right? Mm -hmm. Eric Larson in Decora, Iowa, home of Luther College, says blue is the warmest color is obviously the correct answer. But Reisuke Hamaguchi's underappreciated Japanese masterpiece, Happy Hour, deserves a shout out here. 317 minutes and worth every single one of them. Here's Jordan W. in Chicago. Through a series of expertly shot, painfully intimate long takes, Hubo's four-hour opus, An Elephant Sitting Still, conjures one of the most arresting, alienating film experiences I've ever had. The extraordinary emotional isolation of its characters especially resonates in 2020 amidst quarantine, pandemic, and the mass unemployment crisis. With cinemas mostly closed, there's been a lot of fond reminiscing on the special camaraderie of a packed theater. I was lucky enough to catch Elephant at the Gene Siskel here in Chicago. And what strikes me now about that screening is how much it stands in contrast to my usual movie-going experience. Instead of the bond of a shared laugh at a comedy or even a shared scream at a horror flick, it felt like the entire crowd was sinking away from one another, as if all shared human connection was slipping away as the theater spiraled down following the film's players into the dark. I won't pretend it's a fun experience, but it is absolutely masterful filmmaking. For those up to the emotional burden, a must-see, and currently streaming on the Criterion channel. It sounds harrowing, but I appreciate that great description. Thank you to everyone who voted in the poll and for those suggestions. You know, if you've got a bunch of free time and are looking for an emotional burden like the one we just heard described there by Jordan, we move on to our new poll question, Josh. In a couple of weeks, we are going to get to one of the most anticipated films of the year by us, Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead. She's the celebrated documentary cinematographer who made her feature doc debut a couple years back with Camera Person. It was a Golden Brick nominee here on the show. Dick Johnson is Dead documents her aging father's final years by staging, quote, fantasies of death and beyond, end quote. Yes, Josh, it's a documentary about art and mortality. <laughs> exactly why back in January I asked, will Dick Johnson is Dead be my favorite film of the year or my favorite film of all time? Our new poll question is going to look ahead to that review. Here it is. What's your favorite film, again, over the last decade, about adults and their aging parents? Here are the options we have for you. Marin Ade's Tony Erdman from 2016. Mike Mills' Beginners. That one starred Ewan McGregor and Christopher Plummer. 2013's Nebraska, the Alexander Payne film starring Bruce Dern and Will Forte. Lulu Wang's The Farewell, just from last year, and then Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, which came out in 2012. For other 
you could go with another Chantal Ackerman film, No Home Movie. That was from 2015 about her mother. It was also Ackerman's final film before her 2015 death. So that's one other option. I'm sure listeners will come up with others that come to mind for them. Yeah, I, of course, go right to Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, one of my favorite films of 2012. My favorite film on that list. We could get Chris Minutia Minute involved and see if he wants to disqualify it because it's not quite the same type of dealing with aging parents movie. At least I don't see it that way as some of those others on the list. It's more of a reflection on the past and Sarah Polly's upbringing and her parents' relationship. But I will admit, it is, of course, very much about Sarah Polly's relationship in the present day with her father as well. So I think it belongs and I love it. It's my pick, Josh. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it belongs, but it isn't quite the perfect fit as something maybe like Nebraska, which I like quite a bit. But one I liked even more, made my top 10 list for its year, was Tony Erdman. I mean, that is all about the relationship between the main character and her father and really captures, you know, the adults. And he's he's not aging in terms of health issues or anything like that, but certainly reckoning with having this parent in her life. So I'd go with Tony Erdman. We want to know what movie you'd pick. You can vote and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. One last bit of business. We have another giveaway here, Josh. We're the Oprah of film criticism. Just giving away a car to everybody, or in this case, giving away some movies. We'll go with that. The Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection is available right now on 4K Ultra HD. It's a combo pack with a Blu-ray and digital code. It's new from Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. It includes four iconic films from the Master of Suspense, Josh, and it's hard to go wrong with these titles. Rear Window, Vertigo, The Birds, and for the very first time, the original, never-released, uncut version of Psycho. Oh, this is tantalizing. This is an essential collection featuring hours of bonus footage. It's got collectible disc book packaging and some of those bonus features, Josh, are documentaries, expert commentaries, interviews, screen tests and much more to enter and possibly to win this Hitchcock Classics collection. All you have to do is email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Put Hitchcock in the subject line. It's not a death match between two great filmmakers, but it is a death match between four great films. I'm probably going to spout conventional wisdom here and say maybe The Birds doesn't belong quite in the same category as Psycho, Vertigo, and Rear Window. You just have to tell us which one of those four films is your favorite. In fact, you can tell me I'm dead wrong, and The Birds is actually the best film of the bunch. I know which one you're going with, Josh. Yeah, well, when Rear Window is the greatest film of all time, that you've got to mm. go in that direction. The Birds, I like, though. I'll, I'll be happy, sure. I'll be happy to see some uh, entries for The Birds and hear the reasoning there. More conventional wisdom from me. Vertigo is my favorite, but I love, love Rear Window and Psycho as well. So that's a tough choice. We want to know yours. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. Just use Hitchcock in the subject line and tell us which one of those four classics is your favorite. You just might win. Cher Jeanne, cher Sylvain, il faut d'abord que je m'excuse auprès de vous d'avoir mis si longtemps avant de vous répondre. Pourtant, je pense souvent à vous deux et à la Belgique. Mais il y a eu la rentrée des classes et j'ai été très occupée. Et puis, on ne voit plus le temps passer. Et voilà maintenant que je me rends compte que c'est déjà l'hiver. 
A clip there from Chantel Ackerman's 1975 film, Jean Dielman. It is the next movie in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. So the three and a half hour Dielman, it's been considered a masterpiece of feminist filmmaking since its debut. It consists of these long static shots, a fixed camera of Dielman playing a housewife as she goes about her domestic duties, duties which notably include prostitution. But I would say, Adam, that isn't given any different of a portrayal than, say, folding the napkins that she also does each day. Absolutely. Ackerman made her feature debut in 1972 with Hotel Monterey. Dielman followed in 1975. It made its debut at the Cannes Film Festival. She went on to direct over 40 features, shorts, and documentaries before her death in 2015. She reportedly struggled with depression, and it was called The Suicide by Friends and European News Outlets. She was 65 years old. I go back to some of the feedback from our recent poll question about three hour plus movies. And you heard some variations on the line Jacob Britton had talking about Olivier Assayas's Carlos, where he remarked that every time he watches it, he watches it in one sitting and it just flies by. He said he kind of wishes it was maybe even longer. Did you have a similar reaction, Josh, possibly to Jean Dielman? Um, no, I mean, if it flew by, then the movie wouldn't be working because the point, I mean, the most obvious thing you can say about Jean Dielman is the monotony is the point, right? This is, it's a movie that's going to immerse us in the daily routine of this woman played wonderfully. We got to spend some time on the performance by Delphine Sarig, um, in these tasks. And it's important to sit in them in all their monotony so that we get to know them as well as she does, or almost as well as she does. And so that we will recognize eventually, it's basically three days in her life, right? Mm -hmm. So we will recognize eventually when the pattern changes or shifts and we begin to be curious. Why? What's going on here? When the camera, you know, is, is it maybe 20 minutes in when all of a sudden we get a angle from in the kitchen that we hadn't had before. Yeah. I mean, it's like you, you sit up, you jump. It's startling. Right. And, um, and it's because now we get to notice new things. So, um, or how about that touch? And I forget, forget which day it is, but one of her routines is making the morning coffee for her son, Sylvain. And as she pours the cup for herself, she just leans back against the wall for a minute. And this is something she hadn't done before. She lightly and playfully crosses one leg in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And and it's almost, it's telling you like, these 15 seconds belong to her. And what's crucial about that, it may seem like, you know, a minor detail, but it's because this is a story of a woman who has no time for herself. None. She has oodles of time by herself mm-hmm. more than she wants. But how many of those moments are for herself? We say see very few of them. And this is an incredibly sad and exhausting film, not because of its length or because of its aesthetic, but it's because of the picture of a woman who is caring. All she does is care for others, specifically her son. Yes. And never receives care back. And so it's not that there is there's necessarily something wrong with sacrificing yourself in this way, but a human being can't only do that. They cannot sustain that. You need some love in return. She's not getting it from her her son, who, you know, you just want to strangle in this movie, right? And she's not getting it from her male clients. That is purely business. Mm-hmm. Um, even a letter she gets from her sister. 
that she reads. It's meaningful to her, but this letter comes from Canada, from across the ocean. It is not sustaining her. It's not providing true care. And so you're seeing a person completely abandoned um, and trying to keep up her routines despite this. And eventually, as as the third day comes about faltering in that effort. So this is incredibly suspenseful in a way that you you wouldn't maybe expect or describe usually with the term suspenseful. But maybe it's just, you know, I, slow cinema is working for me more and more the older I get, Adam. And so I did not find this a, a chore at all. I found it I found it to be a masterpiece. I mean, we've got another masterpiece on our hands here with this yeah. marathon after Maya Darren, right? Yeah, we do. And everybody talks about Orson Welles being 25 years old when he made Citizen Kane. It's just astounding to watch John Dielman and realize that Chantal Ackerman was 25 when she made mm. this movie. It doesn't have the bravura or the brashness that Kane has. But I think it has the boldness, though. I think it has the boldness. boldness for sure. Let me get there. Beyond the exactness of it, there is, I would say, an undeniable elegance still to the look. I think of Seyrig's robes and the production design of the rooms and the greens and the browns. There's a kind of sameness. There's a kind of sterility, but also a symmetry and a style that is very pleasing here. And there is absolutely, you said boldness, I would say an artistic assurance and confidence. There's an obvious grasp of the form and a trust in her audience as well. And the biggest thing for me when I think about her being 25 is the wisdom in her perspective as a filmmaker, because she's telling a story that is all about specificity. This is Jean Dielman's story. But how many Jean Dielmans are there? The same age, the same generation, Mm -hmm. the same struggles in Brussels, in Europe, in the world. So this is not, on one hand, Chantel Ackerman's story, but on the other hand, of course it is, because she grew up with these women. She Mm. observed these women and observes them now. And in some ways, of course, this is the story of all women, Josh. And I'm going to give you a very counterintuitive, but I think appropriate potential double feature. See if you can place the movie quote. I'm disciplined and organized. I use habit and routine to make my life possible. Oh, man. is this trivia spotting? I mean, it is. You, we don't put people on the spot like this for trivia spotting. No, I know. That's, I, I'm going to know it as soon as you say it, but go ahead. Leonard Shelby, of course, in Memento. There you go. Describing his daily existence. But how perfectly does that apply to Jean Dielman as yeah. well. What we see over three hours plus is her discipline, her organization, all the habits and all the routines she uses to make her life possible. And then, of course, we see those habits and those routines break down and the consequences that follow as a result. The trick of this movie is that Ackerman's formal precision connects us so closely to Jean's routine and to her psyche that Every action and every detail, as you said, Josh, carries weight. And there is genuine suspense. There's the element of surprise because you're either waiting for something to happen the same way it occurred the day before, or you're recognizing that something seems off Mm -hmm. before you get there, which means that we, like Jean, are untethered. We are going to discover. We're going to witness something new. And it's like we're walking a high wire despite barely ever leaving the Dealman apartment on day one when she's cooking dinner, or I should say she's already prepared it and it's on the stove. She's got it simmering and it's timed so perfectly, right? So she can finish just when the client leaves Mm -hmm. shortly after the son's going to come home right on cue. She's going to be there to greet him and take his coat and give him kisses. And 
then dinner's going to be ready. And we never see a timepiece of any kind in this movie until near the very end. Yet Jean Dielman is like a Swiss watch. I was actually shocked when we see her set her alarm clock to go to bed at night. I don't think we hear it go off. Maybe we do. But it's like, how could she possibly need it? She's got such an internal clock driving every single thing she does. And one of our listeners, Matt White from Indy, wrote in and said that he saw this movie five years ago. So to the suspense point, but I will never forget the feeling I had the first time she left the lid off that pot. That's the type of suspense that you get with Jean Dielman. Well, why does she have that precision? And and. That moment where she manages to boil the water precisely while she's with the client, that, that yeah. is just, that's like, there aren't a ton of laughs in the movie, but that is definitely a one couple. of them because yeah. it's a, it's a great sort of example of, of domestic multitasking. I mean, anyone mm-hmm. who has any sort of domestic responsibility knows the feeling of trying to juggle enough tiny tasks so you accomplish more than one at one time. Hers just happens to be being with the client, but yeah, why, why is she that precise? Because This is how she's defined. This is all her Mm -hmm. life has become. These tasks and accomplishing them is what is giving her life meaning. Not really, you know, I guess partially by her own choice, but just the fact that she is, you know, has these clients also suggests that she she to make ends meet. You know, this is not um, a socialite we're watching here. And so this has come to define her is, and if her day gets off course, that means she's off course and the movie, you know, somewhat takes that literally. Now you were circling around what I think is a crucial question, Adam, for this movie is John supposed to stand in for all women who are in domestic situations or is she supposed to be this particular woman? And that's, she can be and, both. And well, of course she can be both. And and that's probably she why is. this is a masterpiece, right? Yes. But it's interesting having, holding those two things in your head as you're watching this, because the biographical details are pretty vague, right? I didn't even know Sylvain was her son until it kind of became explicit. At first I thought, is this her husband? Um, you know, the, it's hard to read. It's hard to but read. But the way she puts him in his place with that line, no reading at the table, you're like, she, yeah. okay, could be your husband. She, exactly. You never totally. know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but she gives, you know, this, that point poignant monologue when he talks to her at bedtime and lets out a few biographical details, says the Mm -hmm. very crucial thing about, I really wanted a life of my own and a child when she's discussing her past. Also kind of makes a throwaway comment about sex essentially being, I think, what does she say? A minor detail? (laughs) It's just another, another detail. Another detail, which, which helps to explain like, you know, where her clients are in her life. Totally. That's why it is another task. So you get those moments but even Sirig's performance, it's not really psychologically revealing. It's more about the things you were mentioning. These, It's a mastery of exacting gestures and when to alter them and what she's communicating through them. But yet she also has that great moment, another moment to herself, when she stops at a cafe for a cup of coffee, her regular table, we're given the impression, and she just sits pensively facing the camera. And Sirig does something here, you know, which only great actors can do is allow their face to go blank in a way that isn't boring, Mm -hmm. but lets us cast our own feelings about her life and maybe then our own lives onto that face. And, And that's what's happening in that scene. So, so I do think, you know, the fact that she's allowing us to do that also makes Jean register mostly as a symbol. I, but I think that's good. I think that's why it has lasted as this landmark feminist work, because it can capture these moods that are universal, but also place them in this specific woman's, not only in, in her day, but in her specific minute that we've come to know intimately. 
one of the sly jokes in the movie for me, you said there aren't that many moments of levity. And maybe it wasn't intended this way, but I couldn't help but laugh when Sylvan is talking to her at bedtime and he goes off in this rambling thing about how he hated his father back when he was a kid because he learned about sex Mm -hmm. and was imagining his father thrusting inside of his mother. And that just tore him up. And her line is something like, you shouldn't have worried. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to go back to what you were saying about maybe standing in a little bit for all women. What we understand about her and her psyche from watching her routine is we do recognize, you nailed it, how everything she does is functional. There's no extravagance. There's no luxury. It's all utilitarian. And it's primarily, almost exclusively, in someone else's service. Mm -hmm. So from the preparation of dinner to shining shoes, yes, the prostitution too, because it's to earn money, it's all tied to her identity as a mother, just as it was tied to her identity as a mother and wife probably before she was widowed. We can imagine she was in a pretty similar routine to this and has been engaged in this practice for a while. And so another line that's almost tragically comic in light of all that is when she's engaging in a little bit of small talk with a shop owner. I think it's the butcher. And he asks about her son and she just kind of offers this throwaway line. She says, what would I do without him? And I had to note, well, nothing. Everything she does is for him, right? What would I do without him? Truly, after dinner, she turns on the radio and she starts to knit. And I was thinking, Josh, maybe this is it. After watching her on her feet all day. Something for herself. Serving other men. It's something for herself. She gets to relax a little bit, except she doesn't because she's making a sweater that's going to be for him. She's sizing on him. When she drinks tea and talk about multitasking, she drinks tea and shines shoes for him to wear that day. When she drinks coffee, standing up because she's always in motion and thinking about that next task. Even her bath, right? You think of baths as these opportunities for some comfort, for some relaxation. She's not lying back ever. She's hunched forward. She's washing herself. She gets out. That's it. Again, purely functional. The bath has a purpose, nothing more. And in general, nothing is wasted with her. You get a little bit of sense of her frugality in this too, that she shuts off every light, right? As soon as she exits a room. Yes. And when she leaves one on for a second, then of course that clues you in to something subconsciously off with Jean Dielman. I think too, even a little subtle things too, Josh, like, and it's not a frugality thing so much, but it just shows how she doesn't waste anything or any effort. When she sets the tablecloth on this table that her husband used to sit at too, obviously, she only sets it halfway because only two people are going to sit there. Mm -hmm. So she can move that piece of china over or whatever and just fill half the table because she's going to end up picking it up anyway. And even you start paying attention to things like the disparity in her plate versus her son's, how much food she loads onto her growing boy's plate and she takes only a couple bits of the beef and a few potatoes, whereas he gets five or six. And then, of course, she eats everything on her plate. As I recall, he wastes a bunch of it, like no regard whatsoever, really, for the work that she has put in. So Ackerman's achievement is that movies are too often reserved for stories of grand sacrifices, male ones typically. And I think Jean Dielman grants epic status, finally, to the everyday sacrifices of women. That's what we see. Yeah, but it's a tragedy on that count as it well is. because it's not a uh, it, this is not a heroic sacrifice. And one thing we could talk about, I mean, you know, Sylvain played by Jan de Court is 
a monster like that is partly made, right? And so it's interesting that you talk about what might Jean's life have been like before her husband died and, and how she probably was going through very similar routines. And so this is a this is a kid who was raised probably since he was a baby this way, having everything given to him. Um, so partly, you know, when he comes to adulthood, he can choose to reject that and be a better person. But yeah, it's it's something of a cycle probably is what we're seeing here. But it doesn't make it any less tragic for her, especially as things go on and we start to see her spiral. And then the question of something like depression comes into play. And, and are there other things going on here um, that maybe aren't being explicitly talked about? You mentioned the lighting, how she turns the lights on and off entering a room. That's part of the, uh, the formal aesthetic starkness too, mm-hmm. right? That's the only lighting we get. So if that stationary yes. camera is in a room and Jean leaves it and turns the light off, We sit in darkness for a second or two until Ackerman cuts to the room she's entered and she turns on that light. And I think that the stationary camera, the lack of a musical score, the whole point is, is there's nothing here to distract from or even overemphasize these chores at hand. That that is, again, where all the focus is going to be. Another thing that's really remarkable about Sirig's performance is we don't get close to her face very often at all. I mean, I talked about her looking into the camera at that coffee shop. That's that's from like a medium shot, right? We're Mm -hmm. We're not in there. So Ackerman is not even emphasizing the human emotions registering on this face in a way that, you know, we talked about with the nest that we see with Carrie Coon and Jude Law getting those close-ups. That's not given to Sirig here, yet she still gives this, you know, fully human performance of a woman in in increasing distress. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I do want to go back. I mentioned Matt White and his comment about leaving the lid off the pot and the ramifications of that. Even before that, the first discrepancy for me, and I wonder if everybody watching this film has a different moment where you think, oh, something's off, something's amiss here. But the first discrepancy for me, Josh, is when she walks out of the room after the second sexual encounter. So the first one and the second one in terms of the way Dealman handles them are exactly the same. I love the economy of it. Here's where the lighting comes into play too. She goes in the room with the client. It's light in the hallway. The door closes. When the door opens, it's dark now in the hallway. This sexual liaison is treated as a matter of course. Mm -hmm. It seems perfunctory. As we said, making love just a detail. In terms of screen time, it's over literally in an instant. But that change from light to dark which is happening around 5, 5.30, tells us that there has been some passage of time. When she walked out of the bedroom on the first day, I noted how both she and the man looked exactly the same as they did when they went in. Completely put back together, everything in place, no trouble at all, moving about your day, moving about your life as if nothing of any consequence occurred behind that door. No one would be any the wiser. Mm -hmm. When she emerges from the bedroom on day two, her hair is disheveled and it's still that way when her son comes home he remarks and he even comments on it. Yeah. on it yeah he does and you know the moment she walks out that door with her hair awry that something is off mm-hmm. and that's for me when maybe the the downward spiral kind of really initiates did the potatoes even overcook because something unusual something atypical occurred in the bedroom that made that appointment go a little bit too long? Did it somehow affect the timing of everything that followed? Like those are the things, those are the details that we're paying attention to when you watch this movie. Well, and it goes back to the fact that this is the meaning of her life. So 
it shouldn't matter, you know, that that she's I think she's like short on potatoes, right? And has to go out and buy some and then they get overcooked and then the, the timing is all off. It shouldn't be that big a deal. But because she yes. lives a life where that defines her, it it becomes all consuming that things are off just a little bit. And it becomes, you know, frightening to watch her kind of go into this slow panic when things start to unravel. Now, I don't know, you know, this is from 75, if we want to dance around spoilers, but I would like to discuss the ending. Yeah. Can we get there in a second? I want to talk a little bit more about her performance, but I absolutely intended to talk about the ending. Good, because because I want to. Yeah. I really want to hear your take on it and maybe your defense of it, because I'm struggling with it a little bit. But first, you were talking about close-ups and talking about her performance. And I was thinking about, I've talked about this a few times, and if anyone out there went to film school, they probably studied the cool shop effect. This idea where you draw a conclusion about someone's psychology, their wants, their needs, based off of the juxtaposition of two images. And I don't know why it is what it says about my psychology, Josh, that I always think about a cake example. But if you show my face expressionless cut to a piece of cake and then you cut back to me and I'm still expressionless. We all as viewers kind of assume that, well, I must be hungry for that piece of cake, right? Well, here, of course, you don't get those types of cuts in this movie because it is often this very static camera, but we're still in a way, in a weird way, drawing Kuleshov like conclusions where we're making assumptions and we're imposing our own reading from the juxtaposition, not of two images, but of her expression or lack thereof, and her actions. Jean Dielman doesn't tell us her emotional state ever verbally. Ackerman doesn't really reveal her emotional state or explain any of her behavior. She just gives us the action. And you watch that performance, and it's almost tempting to call it in some ways not acting, just because it's so not traditional acting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's free of emoting, It's just existing on camera. That's a little like what you see in Brisson, right? Yeah, exactly. And you realize actually how difficult that must actually be. And it also makes you think about how much work and how manipulative, perhaps, to some filmmakers they view it this way, how manipulative close-ups can be. I had the same thought, Josh, because we have to work harder to read her because we are kept at a distance. But what do we see in those actions? The first day she's peeling potatoes seems to be with purpose. Seems to be no clumsiness at all. Yes. Another time she peels potatoes, there's small pauses. There's some sighing. There's heavier breathing. You can read her disillusionment in those, again, small betrayals of her subconscious. So it's it's a fascinating formal experiment, obviously, and a highly successful one. And I do think we have to acknowledge just how effortless Sayrig's performance seems to be, but how much work she's truly doing on screen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's on the morning of the third day where you do notice that her movements definitely have less purpose. Yeah. And it's more like she's performing these tasks now out of obligation, right? And and that's the day that does go on to be a very dark one. Yeah. And that day too, another great camera moment, another subtle but provocative camera move, not so much a move, it's a composition, it's framing. On day two, We watch the dinner unfold from a completely different perspective than we did on day one. Before, we're watching more head-on, looking at Jean with Savan on the side. And on day two, when things have unraveled a bit, it's now more at the head of the table where presumably her husband might have been. And we now see 
the expanse of the room behind them in the shot, except it's not an expanse. It feels so confined. Mm -hmm. It feels so claustrophobic. You feel like the walls are closing in on her in that moment. So the ending. Yeah. All right. Let's take a spoiler alert moment here, because I really do think um, if listeners haven't seen this and we're prompting them to watch it, uh, they will not want to know this going in. So stop here if you have yet to check out Jean Dielman. Please do. And then, yeah, come back and listen to this little bit of spoiler talk that we're going to do. Came out of nowhere for me. Um, yeah. Did not see it coming. And I will admit, Adam, that I don't know how I feel about movies. I've probably complained about movies that have done this on the show before. None, no titles are coming to mind. But movies that are intentionally without incident for yes. the entirety of their running time that suddenly climax... <sighs> With a That's major it. incident, right? Mm -hmm. And the incident here is that her third client comes in. We follow them into the bedroom this time. So a complete break in the pattern that we've seen. And after they've consummated the act, which seems torturous to Jean, she's getting dressed. The man is laying on the bed. And she re just comes from out of the frame with the scissors, stabs him. We're to assume kills him. Movie ends with her going back to that kitchen table, sitting there. Another pensive, somewhat blank faced scene, you could say, although I mm -hmm. read a lot of a lot of despair into that moment by herself. And that's where the movie ends. I guess to me, Adam, despite that reservation, where as soon as she stabbed him, I was like, my instinct was like, no, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, like the, you had sustained this perfect form for so long. I think long. I gasped. I why think I actually now? let out the no. Yeah. Like yeah. why now? But in retrospect, and as she's sitting at the table, it sort of seemed inevitable. Yeah, I had that word here too. Yep. And and in that way, I think I think it does work. I don't know that Jean Dielman needs that, you know, to be as masterful of a movie as it is, but I also don't think that that choice by Ackerman, I don't think it necessarily elevates it, I should say, but I don't think it takes away from it either. Yeah, so it sounds like we went through the exact same thought process, had the exact same experience with this movie and the ending because Pretty early on, I think it's inevitable that as a viewer, you start thinking, okay, how is this going to end? How is this narrative, a film that seems largely to be absent a narrative, going to finally conclude? And can it end with some kind of dramatic grand gesture? I'm sure you considered, well, maybe she's going to kill herself. Maybe she'll commit suicide. Or is it going to go... The opposite. Is it going to stay true to the movie it seems to be? And it is going to eschew that. And it's going to stick to the monotony, the tedium, and the struggle. Because, yeah, isn't that kind of the point of the film and of plenty of art that life is living with struggle? It's Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, getting knocked back down, doing it again the next day. I couldn't wait. There was more suspense in that, too, Josh. I couldn't wait to see what Ackerman was going to do. But I had convinced myself that she wasn't going to do something drastic mm. or dramatic. And I was and am here at this point, only about 24 hours removed, a little bit disappointed that that's the route she took. There is an inevitability to it, I suppose, that she would snap. But it does seem to, in some ways, contradict what the entire film was predicated on. I also wonder, and I would love to hear the perspective of all of our listeners, especially women who have seen this film and adore this film. It made me feel like it 
for lack of a better phrase, gilds the lily in a sense, and that it takes something, this movie, that was already so implicitly, perhaps explicitly feminist, and in that moment makes it maybe unnecessarily pointedly so. It then it then makes it an attack on men, literally, that the whole film for me was already an indictment of of a patriarchal society that in that moment I didn't know that I necessarily needed Ackerman to go there. But that's secondary to the other point we were both making. So I'm still struggling with that. Ending, yeah. But I agree with you that, that by the time we then sit with her for however many minutes it is and that final silent shot, it's not like I was holding any grudges at that point. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I get that. And I guess for me, I didn't take it as necessarily making the movie more feminist because it, you know, it doesn't necessarily feminism doesn't necessarily have to mean anti-men. Um, of course. But I, but I do, I guess for me, this film got so increasingly harrowing on that last day that it did feel like it was moving toward violence of some sort. And I also started to see it more and more. We get a couple of moments, at least two, I think, of Jean just sitting in a chair mm-hmm. and doing the opposite of what we've ever seen her do, which is nothing, right? Right. And and, and sort of the cloud. I began to, I began yeah. to really think of this as more a portrait of depression, and mm-hmm. not to say that violence always has to be a part of that, but to see her being pushed in ways that she had not been pushed before. And that for as much as this movie was a chronicling of how every day has always been the same for John Dielman, it was also moving towards a chronicling of the day that was different and was different in a violent, tragic mm-hmm. and harrowing way. And I guess that's where I come back to the inevitability and, and would say that it isn't an exclamation point that, again, the movie necessarily needed, but I think it fits the movie that we have. Well, I think there's another thing, too, that's worth discussing, that that violent act does follow that sexual encounter. And it is the only one that we witness because there is kind of two things at play with this movie. We talked about how she says in the movie up to that point treats sex as if it's just a detail. And it is to your point, Josh, earlier, no different than peeling potatoes or anything else she does. But you have to also acknowledge that these three days in the life of Jean Dielman aren't built around her waking up in the morning and going to sleep. The days start and the movie ends with those sexual encounters. I mean, basically, it's right before those. Mm-hmm. It's that five o'clock kind of hour yeah. that we open the film with and obviously we end the film with. So the movie is built around that. The day two session I already mentioned where she comes out looking a little bit wild to me is a really key moment in the film. And the discussion about gender roles and sex is there as a textual element in the film, albeit a minor one. There's discussion even in that letter, which you mentioned the letter she gets from her sister. And I love even how she reads the letter. She reads it like a robot. There's no no emotion whatsoever. It's just another thing to get through. It's another thing that she sort of has to do. She sees it maybe as even entertaining her son, who could not care less, but all her sister can really focus on is how she needs a man, right? So that that element is there. Here's what really struck me. That ending where I agree with you, There's nothing about that sexual event that seems anything less than torturous. Mm -hmm. It's awkward. It's weird. He mostly seems to be just laying on top of her, almost sleeping most of the time. But Josh, I did some Google searches around this just to see if I was crazy and see maybe what the ambiguity was with the end of the film. And I came across plenty of readings of the ending of that film that say 
she very clearly is climaxing in that moment. And I don't know what to hmm. do with that information, if anything. But again, I'm at least trying to set a pattern and think it's worth discussing that even though Jean Dielman, the character, suggests that sex is just a detail, Ackerman gives it a lot more weight. And I wonder what we're supposed yeah, to read into, for if sure. anything, the the end of the film and that act and what perhaps precipitates it. Yeah, that's for sure. The movie takes sex way more seriously than Jean at least professes to. If that's what's happening with her in uh, that final scene, she is not enjoying it, which, no. you know, is is a possibility, I suppose. Uh, that was one of the more harrowing moments in the film because she's in such mm -hmm. complete distress and I think is completely connected with the action that she takes afterwards with the scissors. I mean, we don't it, we cannot say how different this encounter with this client is compared to our other encounters. We have the True. evidence you mentioned where she comes out of the one room looking all put together, the other time disheveled, and this time um, she comes out of the room covered in blood, you know? So we have those distinctions, but we don't know if this is how it goes with all her clients, no. if this was particularly violent for her in some way. But it is definitely not my reading is that this was deeply, deeply distressing to her, this encounter and 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 really key to precipitating to her decision with the scissors. So, yeah, I guess that's that's all I'd add there. Yeah, well, it's a movie and it's a moment, an ending, certainly that demands scrutiny. Jean Dielman is available to rent on demand. It's also playing on the Criterion channel. You may also be able to find it at your local library or through interlibrary loan. Next up, Josh, we have Barbara Loden's Wanda. I have not looked at the runtime. I don't think it's over three hours. That is coming in just a couple of weeks. You can find our full lineup and our past reviews at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, this is not a three-hour show. And it's the end of the show. No, we, we've done three-hour shows, though, right? I'm sure. Uh, we've had yeah, to. Maybe a live show, but we've gotten pretty close <laughs> with other normal shows. That is for sure. If you want to connect with us on Facebook or Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, What is the Best Film Since 2010 About Adults and Their Aging Parents? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release and on VOD, three movies that we talked about on this show. The Nest, first playing right now only in theaters, recommended by both of us on VOD, Antebellum, recommended by Josh, and on Netflix, The Devil All the Time, which I can't quite recommend, sadly. Next week on the show, we'll have our top five landscapes as characters. The photographer Gregory Crudson joining us for that topic. And I did catch up with Miranda July's Kajillionaire, starring Evan Rachel Wood. That opens next weekend. We'll give that at least a few minutes. Josh, do you plan to see it? I'm putting you on the spot. Do you think you're going to be able to make time for it? Or is it going to be a solo joint by me? Nope, I will check it out. I'm hoping to do that tomorrow. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Noga Erez. More information is at nogaerez.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. 
goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.